0: How many know that God is a God of order he He's a god of order i you know I was thinking about this how everything in life has there's order the you know there are things that seem surprising to us and we're, we i'm 'm amazed and in awe of the diversity that God's worked into the universe and these incredible things. But he's a God of order. The universe, the earth, the animal kingdom, chemistry, biology, physics, there's, there's order. You know, you hear these things that the expansion of the universe is at just, the, and I, I can't remember these the terms, but hearing a quantum uh, physicist talk about the speed of the expansion of the universe, if it was any slower, this catastrophic thing would happen. If it was any faster, this catastrophic thing would happen. But God has it just at the exact speed that it needs order. And you go outward in this vast universe and there's order. You know, the we're going around the sun uh, at a particular speed so that we know that... In a 24-hour period, we will, from where we stand, it looks like the sun is coming up. Of course, it's that we're turning. But we know that it's it's this order, this routine. We count on it. It's not like, whoa, that was a short day. You know, that one was only three hours long, and the next one was... You know, I've wondered at times, what was it like when the sun stopped in the days of Joshua on the other side of the planet? (laughs) For, for the Israelites to pursue their enemies, Joshua spoke and God did it and held things. I don't know what that did to the rest of the universe, but of course, of course God could do it. But on the other side of the earth at the time, people waking up and it's dark. Or like, Does this seem like a really long night? Man, I had a long night. Or somebody working, worked all through the night, and the night was, you know, like 36 hours long or something. And it's an anomaly, right? But even anomalies, if it w- they wouldn't be anomalies if it wasn't for the fact that there's order. True. That, you know, oh, somebody is pregnant, and they have a baby, and they wait, and they say, oh, what did you have? Oh, it's a guppy. You know, or what did you have? A rabbit this time. Like, no, you know it's going to be human. Is it a boy or a girl? There's like, there's certain order. It's there's only certain variables, right? It's a world of order. It goes not just out this way, but in terms of, uh, you know, molecules and atoms, there's order. It isn't just random. Certain things, you know, uh, Two hydrogen and one oxygen makes the same thing every time. You know, it doesn't do something different. Thank God. And we live by order. When you think uh, of when you think of a bridge. They have engineers who've studied certain things and they build that thing the same so that they know the strength of this steel at these angles. We can do this and that plant, you know, we put the piles in the ground. We build this thing on this foundation so that we live by faith that that's going to be the same. And when there's a failure, it's because something wasn't taken into account or some other, you know, circumstances came in and they Something got damaged or there's something. But a world of order. We live by it every day, right? Right. It's just the way that it is in this world. There is order in everything. So when Jesus' friends and followers saw him suffer the way they did on Good Friday, there was really only one outcome to expect. And... Only a few of them were somewhere nearby to see, because most by that point had scattered and weren't, uh, weren't showing their faces because they were afraid that they too would be uh, persecuted. Peter didn't show his face perhaps because of fear of persecution or perhaps because he was ashamed that in his big moment when he was going to stand faithful for Jesus, he you know, tucked his tail and, you know, he denied him and he ran. And I don't say that with any judgment because, you know, most of us, probably all of us, would have done a similar thing. And Peter stands as an example of, even on the day we're about to read, when he hears the news about the empty tomb, what does he do? He doesn't hang back, oh, I... I denied Jesus this is, I, if he is alive, I can't show my face. What did he do? He ran. He ran to get there, which is, you know, classic Peter personality. I, I love it. But he ran to get there. It's like, if he is alive, uh, I you know, I don't know if Peter, because now and then he didn't think through, you know, what all would happen. But I don't know if he thought through what would happen if he did get there and see Jesus. But one way or another, it was like, I love Jesus. I let him down. I choked when the pressure was on. But I'm going to him. I'm getting back there near to him. Even if I, even if he banishes me, at least I'll see him and tell him I'm sorry I did that. Yeah. He runs to get there. Here's this, they knew what to expect. And some of them, a few of the women, a few of them that the young ladies portrayed in this video, actually saw him breathe his last. uh, And they, you know, Joseph of Arimathea comes, a wealthy uh, Jew comes and says to Pilate, I'll take his body, I'll put it in my tomb that I've paid for, which is, again, the... The, the prophecies fulfilled on Good Friday and everything surrounding that. The fact that this had been prophesied back in Isaiah 53. That Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. So he's crucified with thieves. But he would be buried with the wealthy. In a wealthy man's tomb. I, you know that just seems like you'd think. Okay well one part of this prophecy must be wrong. Like something, because usually when someone was crucified too, cr- when criminals were crucified, they were taken down and thrown in a common grave. They did not get buried in the tomb of the wealthy. And, but Jesus has this circumstance here and he comes. But they've seen him be scourged, which was brutal in itself. Be- then beaten by the Roman guards. He stripped, put on this, they say, a gorgeous robe. Uh, in in one uh, translation, a gorgeous robe, and then they beat him with uh, a reed, and they slap him and spit on him, and, um, you know, these things, and say, you know, prophesy who hit you, and, you know, and they mock him, they mock worship. He's crowned with this crown of thorns. You know, we have this one over here. This is something that grows right here in Vancouver. As you can see, that's about, oh, two inches long, that Thing. But these are pretty soft compared to, this is called fire thorn, by the way, and it grows here in Vancouver. But uh, they had thorns that they say once that would be jammed on, now I'm not even sure how they did it, uh, but that it would have possibly scarred the bone in his head. It was such brutal things, not like these where they they would snap. But he's crowned with thorns after being scourged, after being mocked, after being stripped in front of people, brought back out before the the, uh, leaders and Pilate says, behold the man. And they, you know, do you want me to you know, set this guy free now that I've punished him, and he's like, "No, crucify him, crucify him." So they he carries his cross part way, can't even finish. So they have to enlist a, a man going, a, a man who's there, who's visiting town on this, you know, high uh, Jewish holiday. They enlist this guy Joseph of Cyrene, and so he carries, or Simon of Cyrene, he carries this thing. Take him out to the place of execution. He's already undoubtedly suffering the effects of severe blood loss, which would be dehydration, uh, severe dehydration, and shock in his physical body. Um, Have you ever had a cramp in any part of your body? And when you get it, it's an a different kind of pain, but you will do almost anything to get it out, right, to make it stop. They say that when Jesus was crucified, and the nails went through here, there's a thing called the ulna nerve, and that that thing would have done this, so that his arms would have seized on him, and you know that feeling if you ever get a cramp in your forearm or something, and it it doubles your hand over, and you almost have to do this to uh, do it, or you get it in your leg, it does the same thing. He would have been cramping, dehydrated, blood loss, his body in shock, all of these things on the cross. And what kills people on the cross is that they could breathe in, but then they would, you know, kind of drop down. And then to exhale, they have this air in their lungs to get it out, they would have to pull on those arms that have been nailed, pull up and push up with their feet on the thing that's on the cross (laughs) so they could get the air out and then go back down and they could breathe in. But that's why, within a few years after this, even the Romans banned this form of punishment because it was so brutal and cruel. It was torture and a slow death. Some people, now not on this day, because there was a Sabbath about to come, and the the leaders of the Jews went and said, we don't want these guys hanging on the cross for all to see on the Sabbath, uh, so take them down, please. And so what they did to two of them was they broke their legs so they couldn't push up, so then they would asphyxiate. That's how they would ultimately die, is that they couldn't breathe anymore because they couldn't pull up. But for Jesus, because of, The wrath of the Romans, the wrath of the people who betrayed him to the Romans, and ultimately, in the unseen realm, the wrath of the devil, pouring out everything he could on that guy. We've got him. We've got the air. Because of that, Jesus was in such a brutal state by the time he got to the cross And then bearing the sin of the world, which he cried out, one of the last seven sayings of Jesus is, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all of eternity, God the Son is separated from the Father because he's a sinner. He isn't a sinner as in he sinned. But he took our sin. It says became sin. He's bearing all of that. So looking at him. He he didn't just say. Well let's just do this symbolically. No. He actually took our sin. To the point that 2 Corinthians 5 says. He who knew no sin. Became sin. He's so Saturated with your sin and mine and the sin of all people, that he it says he became sin. And so, the father, as we even sang today, you know, final breath he gave as heaven looked away. It's like God, you know, my son has become uh, a sinner, he's taken our sin to him. I think that's probably, like when they pierced him, and, well, they pierced him and they said blood and water came out biologically, or they say that that meant he died of a broken heart, that his heart burst, and that, you know, that's, that he separated from his father. I think the, the physical pain was excruciating, which is an interesting thing. The word excruciating means out of the cross, isn't that something? Out of the cross. It's, that's where that word actually comes from. He's got excruciating physical pain, but the deeper pain is emotional and spiritual and mental that he's been separated from God the Father who he's been with for all eternity. No separation ever. And he separates. So Jesus dies nailed to the cross in, in addition to all of that. He has now come to the place that these people even sees his mother and says, you know, and to these women, you know, you weep for yourselves. I'm doing this, but this, you know, where you're living He says to his own mother, you know, behold, your son, you know, you know, take her in. He's got to see this knowing he's leaving his disciples behind all of this stuff. And here's Jesus. He breathes his last and he's all the way dead. Not sort of, right? Like there, has, there have been theories even that, well, maybe he was just almost dead. So when he went in the tomb, he somehow revived. Oh, yeah. After all of that, he feels, you know, uh, you know sort of vivacious enough to go and move that stone. And c- come out and say to his disciples and all of that. Hey, guys, I'm alive. Yeah, right. And they're going to go, oh, hey, our victorious king. No, he was all the way dead. And they knew it. His friends saw him breathe his last and knew he was dead. His enemies, the, the Pharisees and those that put him there, that mocked him, that even said, hey, if you're the king, if you're the Messiah, come down off the cross and we'll believe you. And they call out to him this kind of thing which is a lie. They wouldn't believe him anyway. Nothing would have turned or changed their minds. But they're saying that his friends knew he was all the way dead. His enemies knew he was all the way dead. These Roman guards who were there, who were all too familiar with death, they were, they were soldiers. They knew what death looked like. They inflicted it a lot. They knew he was dead. And one of them says, oh, Surely this man, when, it says, when he saw the way he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. I don't know what it was, if it was just the dignity with which he died. I don't know, but this Roman centurion, he's, he's a soldier. He has, that guy almost for sure had put people to death, and he sees Jesus die, and he says, Surely. This was the Son of God. I don't quite know what it was that he saw, but he knew it was all of this to say. They knew he was dead. So they allowed his body to be taken down. Prepared, did kind of a hurry-up job, prepared his body with some ointment and that, but it was just before the Sabbath was to begin, so they had to take him down, do it quickly, stick him in there. That's why... On the day, on the first day of the week, on Sunday, they came with spices. They were coming to show a last respect, a last um, demonstration of love and care for this, for the Savior, for this man who they called Lord. They came to do that, to finish the job, to do it correctly, because they had done a hurry up job. But they put him in the tomb. It was final. It was final. I I am sure everyone in here has had someone in their life die. A family member, a friend, somebody that you knew. And the closer they are to us, the more there's that feeling of it's final. There's no going back. You know, you, you wish, well, I... I wish I could say this, or I wish I could do this, or, you know, like just to have a moment or something. You know, it's, it's final. It's like it's over. All of what we were going to do together, or all of what I might have said, or anything like that, it's over. I, it's final. It's done. So, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to, uh, 1 to 11. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. and they fa- Now, I should maybe back up. In the verses just before that, it talks about it's the women who had, been, uh, had seen where he was laid. Uh, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered... They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words, and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. An interesting detail, it wasn't just the eleven, and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. You know, uh, how many have heard of Augustine? One of the great um, sort of masters of the faith from uh, you know many uh, centuries ago. Augustine called Mary Magdalene... Uh, the apostle to the apostles. Of all the people, this woman out of whom had been cast seven demons, Christ appears first to her. She's the one that goes and tells the news to the apostles. She's the apostle to the apostles. So, they, uh, these words appeared to the apostles as nonsense. And they would not believe them. Uh, verse 12. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at that which had happened. The women were coming to honor him with one final show of kindness to his dead body. But the whole chapter starts with this glorious word. What is it? Is it up there? Uh, No, it's verse 12. It starts with the same (laughs) same word. Luke chapter 24, it starts with this word. But, on the first day of the week, so he was dead. It's final. It's over. It's finished. All the hopes and dreams, boy, we really thought he was the one. He spoke like nobody ever spoke. He did what nobody could ever do, miracle after miracle. Everything he said, he seemed to be so far ahead of the game all the time. And then he died. He fell short. It seemed like, oh, he, he was defeated. They got hold of him, and we thought, oh, surely he'll you know, do something to get out of this because of just how he is and who he is. We saw him do it before. They wanted to throw him off, uh, you know, a cliff in, in uh, Galilee and kill him. And it's as he passed through their midst. His It wasn't his hour yet. They couldn't ever seem to do it, but now they did. It's so disappointing. He's dead. He's even in the tomb. But, I love that term. When God says but... It's like, listen up. It all seems like it's like this. It's going this direction, but... Oh, wait, was that God saying that? Uh Uh-oh. Something's about to happen. Now, I love this. In terms of... uh, I like words. Words are significant. And this one, the word but is called a disjunctive conjunction. You're just edified by hearing that, aren't you? Yeah, just, you, you know, tell your neighbor, oh, it's a disjunctive conjunction. It'll make them feel better. It's like, wow, that's so amazing. Thank you. Um, a disjunctive conjunction. I think it's cool. I think when I put out my first rap, that's going to be in there, okay? Sesame Shooter did. I'm sure they did. I haven't had a disjunctive conjunction in a long time. What it means, and maybe disjunctive. A junction, of course, is something where things intersect. Disjunctive means something's different. It's a conjunction. It it ties to what came before, but it takes it in a different direction than you'd expect. It's linked, but it's different. So chapter 24 starts. He was dead. He's put in the tomb. They saw where it was. But on the first day of the week, something God is about to do something. It's connected, but it's going another direction. It connects a new thought to the previous thought but in an unexpected direction. The first thought is, Jesus suffered horribly, he died, he's been buried, his life is over. The disciples are disappointed, they're shocked, they're afraid, they'll be next, <laughs> you know. Uh, but they understand the order. This is how it goes. He suffers, he's tortured, he dies, he's put in the grave. The order is, we move on. And so, we thought he was the one, but, you know, It's over. We had such high hopes, but he's been defeated. Injustice won the day. Wrong. God says, but. So all of a sudden, it's all different. This isn't just a conjunction between two chapters of the Bible. This is a conjunction between two chapters of history. All the way along, for thousands of years, people have done what Jesus just did. They died. And then that was the end of it. Death reigned from Adam and Eve right up to this point in history. That's the order. But something new has come. Something new. A new order. The tomb is empty. Something's different. How how do we make sense of this? A new order begins on Resurrection Sunday and a new reign. Satan spent himself and poured out all his fury on the Son of God. The cross represented the devil's great weapon to destroy the Son of God. That was a great weapon to destroy the Son of God. Instead, Jesus utterly crushes the enemy with his own weapon. I want to read this passage for you in 1 Corinthians. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. We speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Listen, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom, listen, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they never would have crucified the Lord of Glory. They never would have done this if they could have seen what He was going to do. It looked like, oh man, look at the sword we have; we're going to cut him down. Instead, He takes that same sword and finishes them off with it. It's like they couldn't see it coming. I want to very there. There was uh, I'm old enough, and a few of you are to remember Muhammad Ali in his prime. And I remember in the 60s when he lost his uh, heavyweight championship because he wouldn't fight in the Vietnam War. And they took it away from him, and they went through all this legal wrangling, and then he got his uh, title, or didn't get his title back, but they allowed him to box again. And he fought a guy named Joe Frazier. They had two really famous fights. The first one, Frazier won. The second one, Ali won. But they were close. Then comes this guy, this monster, named George Foreman, who could punch like God. He had power that was like nobody, and he fought the guy that had beaten Muhammad Ali once. He fought him, and he destroyed him. Halfway through the, the I think it was uh, two minutes into the first round or into the second round, I forget, he he had knocked him down six times, and they, they stopped it. He, he utterly decimated him. So now, a few years later, Muhammad Ali, who's starting to age, is going to fight that monster. And it looked like, oh, as much as I liked Muhammad Ali, I liked George Foreman too. Uh, I thought, eh, no way, you know, not, not against that guy. He, he fought this guy and had close battles. And that guy got decimated by George Foreman. But when they fought, Muhammad Ali had this, strategy that is like he used that guy's weaponry on him. Not, not be, He didn't have the power that George Foreman had, but what he did in this fight was he let him come and spend himself A power puncher, and he wasn't a guy, a finesse fighter like Ali was. He came in, he had him against the ropes the whole fight, and just throwing bombs. And Ali, the whole fight was like this, covering up his midsection so the guy's, you know, hitting places that aren't, you know sending him into tomorrow. And he did this, and partway through, it's funny to hear the testimony of George Foreman, who I heard became a believer later. George Foreman said at one point in the fight, after he had been throwing bombs, and he's starting to wear out. <laughs> he, because he, none of his fights ever went past like the second round. He finished everybody off that quick. Uh, and he said that Ali said to him, at one point in the ring, He said, is that all you've got? And Foreman Foreman said that in his head, he thought, yeah, that's pretty much it. (laughs) Which I think is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But of course, you don't want to say that, you know. Um, Yeah, that's pretty much it. Seventh round. Finally, this guy has been throwing those big arms and he's never gone this long. He's got nothing left. Now he's punching like I would, you know, and... Ali just kind of goes to work and put him out and did the unthinkable by using his the guy's own strength and he spends himself. Here's the devil, got Jesus against the ropes. It looks like everybody's against you. We've got you. The Romans have you. The Jews handed you over. You're finished. You got no place to go. We've got you legally now. And the Romans who have the right to crucify him, the Jews don't, the Romans have the right to do it. Pilate just happens to be in this place where he's willing to sort of do a deal with the Jews because, you know, Judea is a bad place to be. He's got a, you know, it's kind of a bad posting. And, uh, you know, there's been some unrest. And he doesn't need Caesar breathing down his back. So he kind of goes along with these guys. They've got Jesus. They put him on the cross. And it's like that thing that Ali did. They call it the rope-a-dope. And he's back against the thing, just letting him throw everything at him. And then when he's spent... And here's the devil throwing everything at Jesus. We've got him, we've got him on the cross. And the very cross that they crucified him on is the very thing that we celebrate where he did the greatest victory. Do you know, I heard this just a week and a half ago. The word Torah, you know, from the Old Testament, the Jewish characters that spell out the word Torah are the first one is the cross. Where did that come from? The first... uh, And they read from right to left, opposite of us. But the first character is the cross. Uh, I think the the word is called tav. The next one is... uh, I think it's vav. And it means nail. The third one means uh, man or face. And the last one means behold. The word Torah all these years... Bleeding up to Jesus means basically, behold the man on the cross. Nailed to the cross. Behold the man nailed to the cross. Ha! Who knew God already had that in there? That all along, they're living toward this thing. That's why what Jesus did wasn't like what they had in the Old Testament. No, everything that they had was like Jesus pointing forward to him. And here Jesus fulfills all of the stuff that, you know, they've been going along for all these years. So here he is. The devil spends himself on Jesus. Had he known what that cross was going to mean, he would have said, no, not that way. Let's find another way. But back to the story. The women arrive at the tomb to find this big stone moved out of the way. It's, it's heavy. There's no way they could have moved it. So they get there. They go inside. A couple of glowing angels. It says dazzling apparel. Uh, the Matthew version of it says... They, their countenance was like lightning. <laughs> this word, dazzling, in every other place in the New Testament that you find that word in the Greek, it means lightning. It means the noun, the lightning. This thing—I I, I don't know what that looked like. They saw these guys, and they say two men, but you know something about them looked uh, human but they were like lightning. They were glowing, these, these outstanding creatures. It wasn't a couple of, you know, naked babies flying, you know, like you see in angels, you know, the little Cupid things. Something, you know it wasn't just a naked baby floating around in that tomb, because what happened? They were terrified, although a naked baby flying around in the tomb would have been scary itself, but they see this thing, they see these... People with dazzling apparel look like lightning. And what happens? Oh, God, you're down on their faces. It says they're terrified. They're like, they come to the tomb hoping to put some spices on Jesus' body and show a kindness. Instead, they meet two guys that look like lightning. And they're terrified. They fall to the ground. The angel asks why they're looking for the living one among the dead. In Matthew's and Mark's accounts, it says, you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. And here, they say, uh, uh, "Why do you seek the living one among the dead?" It's like, come on, be fair. We saw him die. Well, you know, there's an order to things, and we're following the order. He should be in there. At least the order they thought they were following. He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still, you know, while you were in Galilee with him. Remember that. In Matthew it says, he's not here, he's risen just as he said. It's like they were following the natural order. They knew there was no chance of survival. They might have expected this had they listened to what he said and not thought like Mary and Martha did when Lazarus died and he said, I am the resurrection. And they said, yeah, in the last day. No, I'm not talking about that. And when they heard Jesus say, and in almost every case that Jesus foretold, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to rise again on the third day. And it says they didn't get it. And how could they? they? How could they get that? Well, he said it, but nobody saw people get up from the dead. It's final. But the angel says, he's not here, he's risen. Remember his words. You see an empty tomb? He's not here. But remember his words. He told you he'd be arrested, mistreated, crucified, and that he'd rise again. And it says, and they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven. So now they get to tell the eleven, the other guys, the apostles, they get to go say, guys, guys, the tomb is empty. So they're going to understand, right? Wrong. They do the same thing. It says these words seemed like nonsense. Nonsensical words. They they don't make sense. And what makes sense? The order. The order is different. We don't get it. We They, they seem like nonsense and it says and they would not believe these words. It wasn't that, I mean, okay, maybe they couldn't believe, but it says they would not believe. It's like, you ladies must be wrong. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb, which is something that some have said, oh, they they went to the wrong tomb. Jesus didn't rise, they went to the wrong tomb. But then Peter and in, uh, I think it's in um, the book of John, Peter and John both run to the tomb. They go to the same one. They knew where it was. It says they saw him go in. You think they're going to forget a detail like that from just, you know, really two days earlier? They're not going to forget what tomb. They go there and they, these words seem like nonsense. They didn't seem sensical to them. They wouldn't be, they they need to be convinced of a new order of things. Today, in our lives, God's word still stands. He says it. The order, the order isn't just the natural order. Thank God we're not just confined to the natural order of who we have been. And maybe some of the things spoken over us, some of us who've maybe heard something said, like, you know, well, you can't do that, or you'll never be this, or you're, you know, you're only this, or you're that. Thank God that he says, okay, some of this may be true, but through my son, there is more. Through my son, there is There's a new order in place that supersedes this one. He still has... an. The the new order is actually not even that new. It has always been that if God says it, all of a sudden, all the other rules will have to conform to that. They'll have to... All the other stuff, it seems like the natural order will have to fit what God says because again and again and again and again he hasn't failed in anything he said. So today for us, how will we respond to the reality that Jesus is alive? Are we still looking for him in the tomb? Are we still coming to him thinking, you know that we've just come into a religion? No, we've come into a relationship with the living God, the living Savior who's alive today and not just saying, just deal with what I said before. No, he's alive today and he's speaking today. He's interacting with us now, today, and he wants to. I, how many want a living relationship with the living God rather than... a? A dead religious thing. I don't even want just the empty tomb. I want the one who had been in the tomb and came out because he's alive. I want that. I'm, you know, the empty tomb. There are not discrepancies. There are things in the four counts of the resurrection that are details that people say, oh, how do they harmonize? And some have done a good job of harmonizing some of those things. But a couple of things are solid in all of the accounts one of them being the most important the tomb is empty because he came out he came to life praise the lord somebody say thank god he's alive he's not a dead savior he's not a, he's not a dead example a dead martyr of a who was a good teacher no he's he came out of there, and because he defeated death, he's now seated at the right hand of God with all authority in heaven and earth in his hands. And he says, believe me, follow me. Oh, man, I'm believing you, Jesus. I'm believing your order. I'm not even believing my own Understanding of everything, because I know you keep doing things that are above it. I can only see this much, and you're bigger than that. I'm believing you. I'm following you. I'm counting on you. I'm depending on you. My faith is in you. And he offers his resurrection life to us. He offers his resurrection life to you and me. He said he'd rise again, and he did he said he'd go prepare a place for us with his father and then return for us, he will. Everything he said, he will do. He's done it again and again. That's the new order. I wouldn't use this term because it sounds too new agey, and it's been used to hear this term, the new world order. (laughs) That is the new world order, which actually is the old order. When God says it, that takes care of it. God said this is how it's going to go down. And I'm going to believe him. Yes. Amen. Amen. How are you going to respond to him today? Right. How will you respond to him today? Here's a suggestion. Believe him. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, I love the response of one of the, you know, the guy who came and said, Jesus, come and heal my daughter. And he said, just have, uh, if you believe, uh, this can happen. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Man, that's a prayer. That's a worthy prayer. God, help my unbelief. I'm impacted by the wind and the waves. And, you know, the order is, if you stand on water, you're going to sink. But Jesus says, come and stand on the water. And it's like, okay, a new order is put in place. Everything else is going to conform to his word. Believe. Believe his word. Respond to his word. Depend on his word. Follow him and his word. Amen. He's alive.